0: Hey, all, it's Rebecca. So a little something special today from the Mashup Americans, a live show. Last week in L.A., Amy and I recorded this episode at Skylight Studios, and it was so fun. Thank you to KPCC in person for producing this awesome evening. Our guest at the show was the extremely fabulous Bricio Lopez, a partner at Gala Restaurant, L.A.'s Temple for Oaxacan Cuisine. The James Beard Award-winning restaurant was started by her father, an immigrant from Oaxaca, and remains a family business today. She is also the host and creator of the Super Mamas podcast. We talked about Save by the Bell, how Bulgogi and Carne Asada are basically the same, and since Bricia is the official Mescalera of Los Angeles, we drank a lot of it. At the live event, we were also introduced to the podcast The Limit Does Not Exist, which is hosted by Christina Wallace and Kate Scott Campbell. If you believe that creativity, science, and technology are better together, The Limit Does Not Exist is for you. So stick around after our episode for their conversation with the science writer Jennifer Ouellette. You are very lucky you get a twofer today. So without further ado, here's our conversation with Brescia. I recommend settling in with a little mezcal.
1: guys didn't get my memo about having my Beyonce wind up here. Oh, I know. No. I'm really sorry. What? It's really good for the hair.
0: There, there, you, yeah. there you go. Um, also, we're just so excited to have you here today. Uh, so, in honor of you, we're just going to be sipping something that. Mm-hmm. Uh, a little, little something little in our I cups. I do have any left. Something. I know. You, you might oh, need a drink in preparation. Room and I was like, oh, I thought this was for just right So, now. we have a little, you know, you'll have some later, guys. Mm-hmm. <laughs> We're just gonna Water. wow! I mix mine bubble. with Lacroix lime flavored, and I'm <laughs> just gonna say that's maybe a new uh, cocktail uh, for y- you to do.
2: So let's get started. As Rebecca said, I mean, you and your family are basically a f- celebrities, food celebrities in Los Angeles, and you've built this incredible. Um, business, brand, you have your own line of moles, Michelada mixes, you know, from that you've, you and your sister have also been able to launch your media brand. And I think, you know, this is all like this great immigrant story, right? Like, your dad came from Mexico, uh, your parents built this business from both sides of the border. Can you just tell us about, tell us your immigration story? Sure. So uh, my father, in
1: 1994, Mexico went through one of their many, many, many economic recessions. Hmm. This one particularly was really hard for my family. It was when the peso devaluated. So like one day you went to sleep, you had 100 pesos in your pocket the next day, like, surprise, it's not 100, it's one. We're just making two zeros of the peso.
0: What a great surprise. Right, right, like,
1: oh, my gosh. <laughs> um, I actually remember growing up asking my dad for 100 pesos because that was, like, what you asked for. Like, a oh, 100 pesos, Dad. And, like, then it became one. <laughs> anyway, different story. So uh, at that moment, you know, our family pretty much were, my dad was a mezcal maker, a merchant, mezcal merchant. And he was just kind of, like, Had nothing like he was just like this is really not going anywhere. Mescal was not as cool as it is today, people believe (laughs) it or not. Nobody was drinking mescal back then, so he decided to just say, you know what, I'm just going to move. And I think my my dad, I think to this day, he always tells me he had this one day he was in the farm and he was he looked up and there was like an airplane and he was just like, what is that? And then someone explained to him and. He's like, at that moment, I had this dream that my kids were going to study in the U.S. I don't know where that idea came from, but he grew up thinking that without even having kids. And people would laugh at him. It was like, oh, my gosh, it's never going to happen. So he was like, you know what? I always had this idea. I'm going to move. So for a year, my dad moved to the U.S. And he didn't know what to do. I mean, he didn't really have much, but he had some mezcal and he had some food. And he's like, you know what? I'm just going to sell food and by selling food it was more of like a door salesman sort of like when people would come to your door and sell an encyclopedia do you guys remember people used to knock on your doors and you guys <laughs>
2: people also sold vacuums oh, right door, mm-hmm. right
1: so my dad saw tortillas clayudas. that's what they were called These big tortillas are about like maybe about 15 inches, 17 inches, uh, a tortilla, right? It's like that big, and it's made of corn, and people have never seen corn tortillas this big, and they were made in Oaxaca. So here's the way, here's the business my parents had. My mom, who lived in Oaxaca, still with her four children, would go to the market, we would buy up about, 300 tortillas, we would buy meat, we would buy bread, we would buy mole, we would buy grasshoppers, because yes, we eat those too, we would buy mole, chocolate, we pack it up in like these cardboard boxes, and we ship them off to Tijuana, and this happened every week, and then every week my dad would drive to Tijuana, cross the food over in his truck, in a little white truck, and then would find these pockets of Oaxaqueños that lived in LA, and would sell them this food. And then one day he was like, you know what? I'm just gonna make you yuca in, in the street because in Mexico, if you guys have ever visited Mexico, every corner is basically a restaurant, like several restaurants. Um,
0: Taco trucks on every corner. It's not even a truck, no, really. Oh, bring it, girl. <laughs> yeah. it's not even really
1: trucks. It's basically you go outside of your house and you put a table and you sell whatever you have, from orange juice to tacos at every. or guisados or you know a lady that makes the best chicken soup I mean that's what you do to survive so my dad started doing that and then he was like you know what Um, I think I'm gonna open a restaurant and to this day my dad can't speak English which I think it's like crazy but he was able to build this sort of business with the help of his wife and then a year after of this sort of transactional relationship between Oaxaca and Los Angeles,
0: we moved, and uh, it was work 24 seven. That's a nutshell. It's it's such an LA, it's such an American story, and it's such an LA story. You know, Gela sits geographically sort of in the center of Koreatown, right? Which is kind of a misnomer. Say you're within Koreatown. I mean, Amy always jokes when she visits. All of LA is Koreatown. Is in all of LA Koreatown. That's what I think. Um, But it's also Little El Salvador. It's also you know a big. It's a big Oaxacan community. Um, So you know among many many other ethnicities. And so how did that being at the center of this mashup of many cultures affect your worldview? And for a little perspective about this, you know, 49% of uh, LA is Hispanic, 11% is Asian, and 37% is foreign born. So let's remember that as we're defending our friends in this climate um, and ourselves. So how did that affect your worldview and sort of your palate? So I was 10
1: years old when I moved here. And so I come from Oaxaca, where it's like, 100% 100% of the population is Oaxacan. <laughs> Zero <laughs> diversity there. Um, and I've, n- okay, I always say this story, but I have n- had never seen like a blonde kid before, <laughs> like blonde blue eyes, except Zach Morris from Say by the Bell. Yeah.
2: <laughs> who's actually
0: Asian. Yes, did you know that? What? Yeah. I know. Oh, my he's, mind is think, blown wait, right now. He's Dutch and, and Indonesian. Mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. yeah. They had
2: to dye his hair blonde.
0: Yes. Mm-hmm. Boy's welcome. not blonde. You are
2: welcome. <laughs>
0: <laughs> anyway, Zach out. was your only blonde. Had to raise Go my on. Asian flag. Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. also, um, and Full House. We used to watch Full House and with the Bell. Those are real blondes, I yeah. think. Yeah, oh, yeah. And yeah. oh, I, I,
1: I so, grew up play uh, make-believe with my sister that we used to live in LA and spoke English. So it's like, we, I swear to God, because we used to watch these shows, say at the Bellinful House. So um, was, yeah. when I actually saw one in person, I was like <laughs> a blonde person and blue-eyed kid. Like, I was like in love. I was like, oh. <gasps> you're real. (laughs) Do you know Zach Morris? (laughs) Like, are you a real Barbie? Um, I swear, this is funny. I'm from Oaxaca. Like, you guys know where Oaxaca is? (laughs) So so to me, it was like a, a shock and i wanted to assimilate immediately like i wanted mm. to i wanted to be american like that's all. and i grew up wanting to be american because of these shows and that's and, but i went about my restaurant was in koreatown
2: so i was also kind of what was it like seeing your first korean person well <laughs> did you like how i laughed watch out what you say there are no the blondes on right. the stage but there
1: is a korean woman I think Korean men are very, very handsome. Yeah, very, very handsome. They're very elegant. (laughs) Very, very handsome. I I grew up in Koreatown, girl. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I also it got me to believe that there was more to life than just Oaxaca and just. Even Palisades. So I went to school in Palisades, hence my, mm. you know, blonde sort of fetish <laughs> that I had for a bit there. So, um, and, and not just that, I think that more than anything, what I loved about, what I love about growing up in, in LA, it's just the amount of food that you are exposed to. So... I come, you know, in Oaxaca, I take, I would take for granted all the greatness that I had, you know, like the wonderful sort of food. I grew up with these different flavors. But when you get to L.A., you don't only have amazing Mexican food, but you have Korean food, Japanese. Food. I mean, you have everything. And in Koreatown, you know, I was able to sort of relate to the Korean culture because our food is so similar. Your bulgogi is basically carne asada. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah. really. Like, basically, that's what it is. So... Um, you, Yujan, you know, we have salsa too, mm-hmm. you know? I mean, <laughs> I'm nodding in recognition.
2: This is all very insightful. <laughs> yeah,
1: um, you know, um, you guys have um, this uh, soup. There's a, a restaurant right across the street from a restaurant that they sell this beef soup. Uh, Gold Gol bichon, I think it's called. Mm-hmm. And it's exactly like caldo de res, and uh, caldo de espinazo de res. And I was just, I always felt like, wow, like this is really cool. Like I would have never known. And every time I have friends that come from Mexico to visit, I always say, like, dude, you were, like, in the best place to eat. Just eat. Go and eat. Like, don't
2: even worry about going sightseeing. Just go and eat. Mm -hmm. Then rest. (laughs) Then go eat again. Did your family ever consider, I mean, right now, I think, like, to have a... this is a terrible word fusion restaurant where you're exp- like where we're crossing the borders with our food it's almost at this point it's now trite right like what people are looking for is an authentic experience was there ever a temptation did your family ever consider that with galagetsa so when my dad first opened
1: he opened in a little restaurant that had failed like time and time over and uh, this is in 94 95 94 when my dad opened and Back then, like people really didn't even know much about Mexican food, right? Like they're, uh, 94, like Mexican food was like combo number one. That's about it. Like rice, beans, (laughs) that's it. And my dad here comes and introducing this food that's not just Mexican. It's like Oaxacan food, serving mole and clayudas. And like, my gosh, you're like serving like crickets, you know, it's like crazy. And people would tell him like, Fernando, you have to sell burgers you have to sell burritos you have to sell something people know otherwise no one's going to come through your doors and he's like you know let me tell and and he would say you know I am not I I don't want to appeal to the masses all I want is to feed my people Mm. all I want is to give my people my community a place for them to have food and remember where they come from that's all and I know that if they like it everyone would like it because there is a, not one person that's more demanding in their food than a Oaxaqueño. I mean, they <laughs> believe me, like people, we have jokes that we from Oaxaca that were so complicated. We even roll our cheese into a ball. Like it's, it's real. Like we <laughs> are
0: not, we're crazy. That is a really I- insightful to, to sort of this idea of authenticity or letting people join, you know, Um, welcoming people in by just doing what you do best and appealing to yourself and to your community. Mm -hmm. I mean it's interesting because I was just reading an article that actually a lot of um, around a little bit earlier than that but a lot of people working in kitchens were actually in throughout LA and not just in Oaxacan kitchens were actually So To the day, to this day.
1: I mean I think a lot of chefs always give so much credit to the people from Oaxaca. I mean, uh, even if you if you open, um, gosh, I can't remember his name, but the chef from Jelena, he opens up his book and he talks about the people in his kitchen and they're all from Oaxaca. Pizza Moza, I was just there not too long ago and most of the staff is from Oaxaca. And, I cry. I, I, I mean, I'm not going to cry right now. I oh, cry all the time. <laughs> <laughs> Feel um, free. They brought out this um, little latte, and they had spelled like Oaxaca, and gets like, on the latte. Oh, really? And they all came out, and I felt like so happy and proud that they, you know, it's like their service, you know? You know, you like to believe that people acknowledge them. You like to believe that people are nice, and you like to believe that people appreciate those people, the invisible people, the people that are just... Serving you or bussing because they're not even they're not even your servers you know they're just your busters and they're the people who are in your kitchen and you like to believe that people appreciate them. the reality though is very few people are cordial so to kind of I don't know just to kind of have that warmth feeling of somebody that's one of yours to be on the other side as like the you know the guest to them they felt so happy and they you know and, and when I saw that I felt. Just, I was just like I wanted to cry because it, it just gives me some sense of like just it's us that are doing the work. <laughs> you're a crybaby
2: though. That's the problem. I know. Huh? Well, I'm great. like <laughs> um, thank Don't you. your mascara. I know. You want to take a sip of your oh, water? Yes. <laughs> um, There's something also about your family story that you know it's a it's a beautiful one right and now you're here on the stage and we're here on the stage and we so relate to the that narrative and it's one that we're we're really proud of you know like we're all um you're an immigrant we're first generation like our families came to this country with nothing and like built businesses and we're entrepreneurial and then you know now then we all got to go to college and like kind of live out our dreams and,
0: and like sit on a stage and doing, doing this crying live. about yeah. whatever, yeah, like drinking um, with yeah. and <laughs> drinking
2: are we drinking with and, oh, yeah. you know so it, it's something that is very true to our experience, and again, that we are so proud of. But I think, you know, we've been thinking a lot lately about how our stories are are very much a part right now in the American conversation as being, like, the good immigrant stories. Like, we're the good immigrants. We're the ones that, like, are are doing exactly what immigrants are supposed to do when they come to the U.S. And that then sets us up for being like, well, okay, so that's... That's dangerous because then if 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 like we're the good ones, then that means that there there should there have to be bad ones. There are people that are like less deserving of being here, and there's like a part of me especially that that no longer wants to be a part of that story. Right. You know that doesn't that doesn't feel that that's something to celebrate anymore. And I just wonder, you know, what are your feelings on this? That comes from really it's more of a
1: socioeconomic issue, right? Like, who's got more money than the other person, and then it goes back to like. Basic racism, like who is darker and who's lighter, mm-hmm. because like a Canadian immigrant seems to be quote unquote more deserving than like a Mexican immigrant, and you know it, it's just plain and plain and simple. Like let's keep it real. Like it's just racism one are, are you brown? You're poor. You're brown. You have money. You're white. So therefore, you're more deserving than you are, and and that's probably me going like to the extreme, but like at the Basic, like a, like the really the essence of the message, like that's what they're trying to say. Okay. So, being deserving or not, I think that it's important to share. And I, my whole thing is, you change the world one person at a time, right? So, if you can change one person's opinion of I'm an immigrant, then 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 it's great. That's amazing. If I can have one person who may not like my people, my community, meet me and just understand my story and understand where I come from and just get to know me. And maybe that way I can, they can
0: influence their circle we feel the same way. I think empathy is one of the ways that we're trying to walk through the world and building that by getting to tell people stories and telling your story here. Um, So just speaking of empathy, your husband is a Mexican-American and second-generation Californian. So you're a Mexican immigrant, as we discussed. Do you have different ways of being Mexican and do you have different ideas of Mexican food? Very, very much so different, (laughs)
1: Uh, very much so. And how is his Spanish? He, he speaks Spanish. He speaks Spanish. It's funny. I mean, he works for a Spanish he language does, radio station. He does. He, he does. The, you know, the other day, he was talking to um, our contractor in Spanish. And I, you know, I let him talk. And then the entire time, you know, he was like, babe, did he understood me? And I was like, well... I think like half of the half of the message didn't go well, and then the other half, I think he just can cite it with you. But I'll talk to him tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so he he speaks Spanish. Um, very different. Like we grew up listening to different music. You know, um, I grew up listening to Juan Gabriel, Amanda Miguel, Luis Miguel, Camilo Sesto. Just like very typical, like different music. He grew up listening to Johnny Cash. You know, he <laughs> he like, he shows, he grew up diff- watching different movies. Like, he, um, you know, like, great, you know, Mexican-American loves, you know, Morrissey, you know? Yeah. <laughs>
2: Good yeah.
0: Mexican-American boy. If you don't um, know that, there's a um, secret, <laughs> it's not secret at all, actually. It's there's not a, a secret. a huge population, uh, and it's a, like a love fest with Morrissey that's a, Mex- a Chicano and Mexican-American he population. Doesn't, you know,
1: he doesn't, he doesn't really consider himself a Chicano, so, though.
0: So, and, and Mexican-American. also Mexican-Americans who identify, there's even a band called Mexersey, which I recommend you check out. Yeah. <laughs>
1: and I had no idea who Morrissey was. I still um, kind of don't. You know, what is funny is that uh, for Mexican Americans in the room of Mexicans, you know, I can live with Vicente Fernandez. I, you know, I, I don't mind him. I like him. I, I don't love him. And he loves Vicente Fernandez. And I'm like, what? I was born we in Mexico. In I don't even live in different on that much. So yeah. that's like a weird thing that we have. Food, you know, he he was his mom cooked more flour tortillas. Mm. I didn't have a flour tortilla until I moved to the U.S. So like that was another big one. Um, <laughs> he, what do you make for your son? Oh man, this is where like this is where like I'm gonna lose my cred here because we're so like we're like that health nut family, you oh, know? We're like that like you know, like almond milk and like <laughs> vegan on the weekdays, you know what I mean? Meat only once a week.
0: Uh, I cannot relate to that. I so, cannot relate. So that's
1: where, I think that's where we kind of get like, you know, it's like a new age, right? Like yeah. This is like the new that's identity. That's why you turn
2: like, into white people.
1: <laughs> but this is why we don't like, This is, this is why I don't like labels. This is why I don't like labels because it's like Someone would label you something. It's like, well, well, then you're not really that because you do this, right? Or like, what do you mean you don't eat carne asada every day? I'm like, because I like quinoa and broccoli, dude. Like, yeah. <laughs> why do I have to eat carne asada every day? You know, like, it's just, it, I don't have to. I don't have to be one thing. Like, this is the whole. This, this is this is who I am. So, my son loves clayudas, I will say that, and it's funny because at the restaurant. Again, our clayudas, the big tortillas. And we um, actually, with the way we package them, we package them on a pizza box. So every time my son sees a pizza box, he goes, Oh, mommy, una clayuda. And I'm like, Oh, sure. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that's Here, the best. He thinks yeah. everything is a. So he thinks
0: everything's like La Well, first of all, that's the premise of the Mashup Americans. You get to do you and be all the things that you want to be, and that's authentic to your experience and probably a lot more people than it is sort of typically represented. Um, mm-hmm. So with that, I think we're going to go into our Mashup Speed Round. Um, Brisia, how do you mash up? Even though I
1: was born in Mexico and I am an immigrant, I do consider myself Mexican American because I do like Quinoa. (laughs) Um, So I definitely am a Mexican-American And I'm married to a Mexican-American man Then again, I'm very Oaxacan So I know we a short time I have to say this one story We went to Vegas once And my little sister was pulled on stage And then they asked her Hi, where are you from? And she was like, Oaxaca? And, like, nobody knew what that was, you know? It was just before, like, people even knew, you know, lots about Mexico. So then she was like, Oaxaca? And then they were like, "Uh, excuse me? And she was like, "Uh, uh, Mexico. (laughs) Anyway, so anyway, yes, I guess I would say I'm Oaxacan Mexican-American. I'm married to a Mexican-American man. Um, What is your Starbucks name? My Starbucks name? For a long time, my Starbucks name was just Anna. Because I was just, I was so tired of people misspelling my name. And saw so I would just be like, just Anna. Until one guy was like, is that with two ends on one end?" And I was like, you know what? If that's going to cause me trouble, <laughs> I'm going to go with Bricia. So I just say my name, Bricia. And then I make people re- like, erase my name and re-put it. Because I'm like, no. I love my name. So right. I had to like, take that back. Awesome. Yeah.
0: What did you or do you call your grandmother? Abuelita.
2: What languages do you speak?
0: Spanish Mexican. The Spanish, Mexican, <laughs> Spanish, Mexican, and English. <laughs> Very different, by the way. Trust me. <laughs> What's your comfort food?
1: I love me any type of sandwich. Anything mm-hmm. with two breads and something in between. <laughs> <laughs> From a semita to a torta to a torta ahogada to a good old turkey club to a po' boy to... Uh, oh, my gosh, like a tuna melt, bagel. I mean, I have this f- huge fascination with sandwiches. Like, I can, I feel like I want to write a book on sandwiches just because I have this whole, like... Love.
0: I would love to read your book <laughs> on sandwiches, but there has to be a section about when, when you have to go gluten-free.
1: I feel like... <laughs> no, I am not gluten-free. I am not. I know that. I love sandwiches too much.
0: What's always in your fridge?
1: <laughs> I have a kid, so... Uh, I always have to have like milk, eggs, uh, coconut water because my baby loves coconut <laughs>
2: water. Um, and I always have to have beans, always have to have beans. Um, what dating advice did you get from your immigrant parents?
1: <laughs> I don't,
2: they don't talk to me about... <laughs> No.
1: My dad still fast forward sex scenes when we watch movies.
0: <laughs> <laughs> true
1: story, true story. My dad can even hear the word penis because he will walk out the room. <laughs>
0: Don't listen to this, pops. Um, what do you spend money on that your parents never would?
1: Anthony Robbins seminars.
0: Really? Audiobooks and stuff. Yeah. Oh my God. There's a any Anthony thing. Robbins fans here? I mean. Tony no. Robbins? Okay. Okay. I'm alone. And uh, my dad still like he's like you're
1: going to what? I could teach you that. I could tell you that your whole life. You listen to me. You
2: gotta go pay some man to tell you that. Yeah. Like, and you were like penis, dad. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> penis. So. The final question. What is your bubba Misa? So that's like an old wives' tale that you know, maybe isn't true, but you still kind of believe.
1: So, when we're roasting chiles, we and we, we cook a lot, and especially my mom's here, when you make mole, you have to roast chiles. When you make anything really a lot. And Wait, and I just want to say, I thought you said chilies. when
0: you roast Cheetos, and I was like, go <laughs> on. <"They're laughs> <are." laughs> I'm going to try did, that one. You ro- I didn't, roast didn't know chilies. that Oaxacan. When person. you
1: roast chiles, there's this. Um, If you're in the kitchen and chiles are being roasted and everyone's coughing but one person, that person's a witch.
0: It's true. That is true. It's true. That is so true. So, um, well, with that, thank you Brucia for this, for this conversation. And thank you for having me. Thank you to all of you for coming today. Any opportunity we get to talk about Mark Paul Gosselaar is a delight. So thank you. To Brescia Lopez for being 100% you. If you're in LA, go eat delicious food at Gelaguetza. And if you're not in LA, you can still get Oaxacan deliciousness delivered to your home. Check out ilovemole.com and follow Brescia on all the socials at Brescia Lopez. That's B R I C I A L O P E Z. And thank you to Skylight Studios, the Annenberg Space for Photography, and the KPCC in person team, especially Charlotte Duran who made it all happen. Our producer today was Jocelyn Gonzalez. Our show is produced. By American Public Media and Southern California Public Radio (KPCC). We're also supported in part by an award from the National Endowment for the Arts. On the web at arts.gov. And now, stay tuned for the limit does not exist.
3: I'm Kate Scott Campbell. I'm Christina Wallace.
4: I'm an actress. I am an entrepreneur. A writer. A writer. Producer. Frequent
3: public speaker. I like to make things. I am a woman in tech. One woman think tank. Pianist, cellist, and chorister. That's right, I am a choir
4: nerd. I'm a classically trained violinist, a recreational
3: ukuleleist. I often describe myself as fluent in three languages, math, music, and English. Je parle français. I also write Java, Python, and C++. I can tap dance. I can also run in heels and use power tools. I'm a human Venn diagram. I'm a human Venn diagram.
4: A human Venn diagram is a multi-hyphenate. An individual whose interests intersect in unexpected ways. Mm -hmm. Do we all know what a Venn diagram is? I would hope so. Yeah, you can know the Venn diagram, the two circles. Yeah, oh, okay. Some hand symbols. There we go. What? (gasps) The Limit Does Not Exist is a podcast for human Venn
3: diagrams. It's a place where you can follow your curiosities down the rabbit hole. It's a reference to a scene in Mean Girls. The Limit Does Not Exist. Also, it's just a really good time. It's a really good time. We have a good time. Yeah, I would maybe do like a cluster analysis and then see if you can like distribute them on a two by two matrix and draw out some learnings. Christina, (laughs) this is is why I need you in my life because
4: you regularly use phrases like, yeah, Q4 2018. And I'm like, Christina (laughs) Wallace, can I just rub your shoulder for a minute and get some of that? The limit does not exist.
3: Oh, that limit? It doesn't exist.
4: That's how you high five with a hula hoop.
3: I'm Christina Wallace. And I'm Kate Scott Campbell. And you're listening to a live taping of The Limit Does Not Exist. A podcast for Human Venn Diagram. Coming at you every single Monday. And hosted by us.
4: Okay, so if you guys listen to our show, We say that a few times, right? It's at the top of every episode. And we didn't feel like we could do any version of this show without... It's our pre-show ritual. It's our pre-show ritual. I didn't realize it was, but now I know. That's what it is. Mm -hmm. Um, We are so happy to be here tonight, and we're so happy that you are all here. Thank you for... (laughs) Yes, please. Please give yourselves a round of applause. (laughs) Thank you for braving rush hour LA traffic. Mm-hmm. I have a lot of East Side friends here and I'm so grateful. <laughs> um, I also want to shout out Spencer Howard, who's in the audience who cut together that video for mm-hmm. us. Spencer, thank you. Totally.
3: Who else do we want to shout and out? And a little love, <laughs> our Podcast One producer, uh, Steve is in the audience. Woo! We, Hi, Steve. We love Steve. Um, and just the KPCC team and Charlotte and and her whole team that made this possible. Absolutely, we are elated. Thank to you, be guys. Here. So thank I want to give an extra
4: special shout out to Claire Kaplan, who happens to be a friend of mine, on the KPCC team. True. So we're just gonna get right to it, you guys. We are so excited about our guest tonight. I have had a serious internet crush on her for years. <laughs> And this is really huge that she's coming on our show. Mm -hmm. Jennifer Ouellette is a science writer. She's currently based in L.A., so we are in her hometown, as she is in ours. Mine? Mm. No. I'm on a plane. Yeah. Yeah. You're on a plane in a little bit. Uh, Jennifer was formerly the science editor at Gizmodo. Mm -hmm. She's the author of four popular science books, including The Physics of the Buffyverse, which is how Jennifer came on my radar. Mm -hmm. It uses the characters, concepts, and plot lines of, that's right, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Mm -hmm. and its very popular spinoff, Angel, shout out to Angel, Uh, to illustrate a wide (laughs) range of concepts in the physical sciences. Jennifer also wrote the Calculus Diaries, which is a really fun account of her year spent confronting her math phobia. I know some of us in this room have experienced that. Mm -hmm. Um, And how she learned to apply calculus to everything from gas mileage to rides at Disneyland. Shout out to my Disney friends in the audience. Um, And uh, to to things like warding off zombies, as one does. As one does. Uh, Her latest book is called Me, Myself, and Why? Searching for the Science of Self. And she draws on cutting edge research in genetics, neuroscience, and psychology to explore the mysteries of human identity and behavior, and to kind of ask the question, how did we get to be who we are? Which we're really into on we our are. show. It's true. Uh, Jennifer's work has appeared in places like The Washington Post, LA Times, New York Times Book Review, Scientific American, and many, many more
3: places. Totally. So, as you may have surmised, she has a strong interests in the intersection of science. And popular culture, science communication—really, that is, uh, I think, the crux of the Venn diagram as we would draw it out for <laughs> Jennifer. Um, but she's also founding director of the Science and Entertainment Exchange, a Los Angeles-based initiative of the National Academy of Sciences, aimed at fostering creative collaborations between scientists and the entertainment industry. Yes, so, so fit into that in yes. Hollywood and LA. Mm-hmm. Um, she's a journalist in residence. She's an instructor. She does a lot of things. So also, side note, in true human Venn diagram form, she holds a black belt in jujitsu. That's so right. don't cross her. Uh, but no to draw on the expertise from time to time to demonstrate the fundamentals of what else? Newtonian uh, mechanics. I mean, as you do. So uh, without further ado, let's welcome Jennifer up on the stage. Yeah! Woo-hoo. Excellent, excellent. OK, so you've written about yourself. Um, I'm an English major turned science writer through serendipitous accident. We love serendipitous accidents at, at The Limit Does Not Exist, and so, of course, we need to hear about yours. Give us a little bit of that backstory.
5: Well, you know, it's interesting. I was very much a math phobe, never really took physics. Um, Thought I was going to go to graduate school in English literature, and that doesn't work out. And you know what happens when the unexpected happens? You have your life what you think is planned out, mm-hmm. and the rug gets pulled out from under you. Mm-hmm. And you kind of, what do I do now? Who mm-hmm. am I, you know, if I don't have this? Mm-hmm. And I ended up taking a job with a physics organization, just kind of an administrative assistant job, and they said, wait, you can write? <laughs> we would rather <laughs> teach you physics rather than teach a physicist <laughs> how to write. So, Ouch. <laughs> And I ended up writing (laughs) physicists
3: with us this evening. I ended up writing.
5: They were very nice about it. Sure. (laughs) Uh, They taught me basic physics, and I kind of learned on the job interviewing scientists. You know, er, initially for their in-house publications, Mm -hmm. but that sort of led gradually to writing for other outlets and magazines and things like that for a more general audience. And it turned out to be the perfect career for me, and I never even knew it existed. I love hearing that mm-hmm. so much
4: and you know there's something really interesting here because in the calculus diaries at the very beginning of the book you share that the book grew out of an impulsive internet mm-hmm. purchase I know some of us or many of us have had those uh, of a DVD lecture series called Calculus Made Clear That's a very strange impulsive <laughs> internet purchase I just <laughs> I need that. It is a very strange purchase. I'm a math
5: major and I would say that's a strange. <laughs> I, you have to in chalk it down to purchase. being in love. Okay. Okay? Because I had just met the man who would become my husband, <laughs> and he was visiting me in D.C. We had been dating literally one month, and I was crazy <laughs> about this dude. And you and needed to know more calculus. He was doing a, he was doing his first series of lectures for the teaching company, which was the same company that did this. So I thought, well, my my boyfriend is doing this, so I'm going to like going to learn some math. <laughs>
3: <laughs> and then I, I and I decided
5: to blog about it cuz I thought, well, I'm never going to do this if I don't actually like put myself on notice. I
3: love this so much cuz some people think it's like a sacrifice for love when they, you know, tolerate a sports game or <laughs> I don't know, sitting I freaking learned calculus. You learned calculus you for love. <laughs> <laughs> and you
4: guys are very happily married. Might we actually I ask. are. Yes. yes. So and are. and your our, husband It is, is... our
5: 10 year anniversary oh, this year. Oh my gosh. And my Congratulations. husband is a... <laughs> And my husband is a physicist at Caltech. Yes. Oh, my goodness. Fabulous.
4: Uh, and also has written wonderful books. Yes, his and name
5: is Sean Carroll, and you should, you should Google him.
4: <laughs> so, so back to this impulsive, love-drunk purchase uh-huh. that you Calculus. had one late night on the Internet. So how much has your rather, how much has the role of spontaneity and serendipity played in your career path? Because, you know, I'm really interested by Mm. this. It seems that people we talk to on our show, there are these unexpected twists and turns. Mm. And I'm just curious, you know, have you worked to cultivate a sense of spontaneity
5: or has it just kind of happened and you went with it? I think that you what you have to cultivate is a sense of openness mm-hmm. um, so that you can take advantage of the serendipitous things that come about when they do. People make a mistake of either being too rigid or too loose.
0: Mm-hmm. And,
5: you know, you need the discipline. I'm a very disciplined person. I like to have my plan. I like to kind mm-hmm. of, you know, I'm, I'm a to-do list maker. I know mm-hmm. you are, too. I love my lists. You know and too. You know, <laughs> we have calendars and we stick by them. Trello. But you have to mm. be willing at some point to throw the rule book out the window, throw the schedule out the window and take advantage of something new when it piques your interest. And that's where the spontaneity comes in. And the discipline actually m- means that you can better take advantage mm-hmm. of these new opportunities because you've actually done some of the work to prepare for it.
4: Is there a, Even a feeling... Even though you didn't know
5: you were preparing for it, you were in some way <laughs> so you were disciplined about that your spontaneity. Everything
4: is, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, Understood. is there some feeling where you know, okay, this is the point where yeah. I jump off the cliff, right? Or,
5: or follow this whim or whatever. I don't whatever. think it's, it's not this big eureka moment. Yeah. You know, I, I've never had a moment where, I th- where it, it was more these gradual little steps and just following these different things. And suddenly five years later, it's like, how did I even get here? Mm-hmm. And you look back and you can see that these tiny little decisions that you made along the way that you didn't think were all that significant mm-hmm. ended up really shaping the path that your mm-hmm. life took. And my path has taken this very weird, you
3: know, trajectory. It has not been a straight line. Well, I love this, so I, I, my day job, one of the things that I do, as we were talking about before this, is around how do you build growth and true innovation in corporate world? In, in um, How do you take that startup mentality and take it to big enterprises? And one of the things that big enterprises really struggle with is they want to strategic plan their way to these big uh aha innovations that will be the future of their companies. And (laughs) we have to break them of that mentality. You you can't write a 10-year strategic plan toward the future. Um, You have to take a more of a discovery approach. And really, as we talk about a lot on the show, this portfolio approach to projects and ideas and interests, because you don't actually know which one can ride mm-hmm. the wave of the future, right? Right. When you have to throw a lot at the wall and see what's next. Exactly. <laughs> that sort of outside event or that moment of, of serendipity that you're like, oh, I've got I've got a thing that I can take advantage of here because mm-hmm. I was sort of prepared with mm-hmm. all of all the different pieces that I put together around my life. Right. right. So so your most
4: recent book is mm-hmm. called Me, Myself and Why, Searching for <laughs> the Science of Self. And you know, it takes readers on a tour of the science behind who we are, how we got this way, how did we become professional pasta throwers or how did we start <laughs> Deciding that we wanted to which is what I like to call myself uh, how did we <laughs> Decide that we wanted to you know manage a portfolio of, of skills. So, you know, how in fact did we get this way in one sentence or less? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, but Did you have any aha moments for why we're into what we're into mm-hmm. when when you were writing the book?
5: Well, you know, it's interesting. I started writing the book because I'm adopted. And as natural, oh, wow. you have this very uh, strong interest in the whole nature versus nurture question. And the first thing I learned was that's the wrong question. Ooh. So, you know, first of all, I asked, the qu- yeah, that was the first question I asked my very first interview. She goes, oh, no, that's the wrong question. What's the right question? Um, <laughs> it's just, it's not that simple. It's nature mm. and ah. nurture. It's mm. both. And it's, it's very convoluted. The other important thing that I thought I learned, uh, that I learned was about on the genetics aspect, because mm-hmm. I write mostly about physics and math and related things mm-hmm. like that. And I had, this is the first time I'd really delved into genetics since like high school biology and you know it's not this one gene one trait kind of thing you know height is is like 99 percent heritable right it's, mm. there's no, almost no environment and you right. there's so right. many different genes involved in determining how tall you are Scientists have only figured out a fraction of them, hmm. all working together. And so it ends up being this complex system. And it's, it's a nonlinear complex system. You know what this means. I love that. Um, <laughs> and it means that you really can't make these predictions, that a whole lot of things happen along the line and, and gradual little tiny effects build up. And this just goes on and on, and you build on top of that. And that all that together eventually makes you who you are. But, y- you know, who you are is constantly changing. Hmm. Well, right, and it feels like that that outlook
4: takes the pressure off, right? Of like, one decision I make will be final or will put me down a path that will never go back into another direction, right? Because it feels like it is this holistic collecting of... Experiences. I, don't know if I, th- I'm I think that right. some
5: things end up being more important than others, but you can't predict which ones those are going to be. Mm-hmm. And the writing of the book itself ended up being kind of going down the rabbit hole kind of thing. It ended up <laughs> being about the journey because the second interview that I did was with a neuroscientist in New York City, uh, David Popple. He's at NYU, and you know, he sat me down. And he says, "You know, you're not going to find the answer. You know, millions of very smart <laughs> scientists are working on this, and we haven't found the answer. You're not going to crack that nut." you know so i got like two big smackdowns right mm-hmm. off the bat <laughs> the book became about the journey and the journey is what it is and the story that we end up telling because in the end who we are is who we decide we are mm-hmm. we tell a lot of different stories depending on the audience about who we are and a lot of what we end up remembering about this and how we shape our notion of who we are is based
3: on the stories that we tell Okay, so I'm going to ask oh a question that's not on our prepared list. Going um, off the cuff, so I So I am fascinated by this, and and certainly like this moment, right? The second interview, you're talking to this expert, and he's telling you point blank, you're <laughs> not going to. He's telling my this. book is going to suck. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so Vote supportive. <laughs> and, um, and in particular, you know, you're writing in these fields that require a fair amount of technical knowledge and savviness to navigate, and you don't have that training. How do you? Tell yourself as you're crafting the story about <laughs> who you are is that I'm a science communicator. That it's okay that I don't know this. It's learnable. I'll figure it out. When maybe the outside or the experts that you're you know you're interacting mm-hmm. with are are telling you you're not you don't you're not going to get this right. You have to right. have a PhD. You're not of this world. and right? I, like I, it feels like a very closed. Yes system in some ways. You know, it, it, it's
5: changing. I think it used to be that. I think there are some old guard people who are still that way. You know, I've definitely heard people say that if you're going to write about physics, you have to have a PhD. And mm. I'm, they, they usually say it to me, not really, so that I don't have a PhD. <laughs> and I went, no, English major here. So, yeah. <laughs> um, a lot of it is just I'm stubborn and and, and not mm. afraid of the material and not afraid to ask dumb questions. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's mm-hmm. it's being willing to look stupid um, and saying no, you really have to break this down with me a little bit more, you know. Uh, let, let's stop a moment. Let's, can you define this term? You, you've mm-hmm. really got to, you know, push them to come down to your level and not be apologetic about it. And I think women in particular, from my generation especially, always feel like we need to pretend that we know more than we do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the worst thing you can do. You know, be open about what you know and what you don't know. It doesn't mean you're stupid. A lot of times it's just a vocabulary
3: problem. This, we have talked about this, the, the right. tyranny
5: of jargon. Right. Yes. That if you
3: would just perc- use plain 90% language. 90% of
5: it is, is yeah. just a vocabulary. Yeah. You just translate.
3: <laughs> yes. Yeah.
4: Yeah. Can you break that down, please? Yeah. When no, I had to
3: translate my opera experience when I was going through <laughs> my MBA and trying to get a job in tech, and we're like, how do I make this clear that mm-hmm. working backstage on Norma is relevant to a startup? <laughs> exactly. It's true. Well, speaking of merging careers, Ooh, you let's yes.
4: talk about Hollywood, yes. since <laughs> we are in fact uh, taping this live in LA tonight. Um, For two years, you were the director of the Science and Entertainment Exchange, which is a national academy of sciences program founded to foster creative collaborations between scientists and the entertainment industry. So this is so cool and so relevant
5: for where we all live. Mm -hmm.
4: Tell us about... Your work there, what what went into trying to merge those two fields?
5: I kind of was brought on to be the first director. They were starting the program at the NAS, the National Academy, and they needed someone who was familiar with both science and popular culture in Hollywood. And so, and I had just moved to L.A., and they were like, oh my God, you know, you, you can do this. <laughs> was this and, before or after the Buffy book? Uh, it was after, because yeah. I had already so done you're the Buffy book, you uniquely ed, but, yeah. qualified. I was uniquely qualified. <laughs> um, and I'd been a journalist for a long time, so I had contacts among scientists, because literally when we started the program, we had no database. We had, like, me and, you know, a Blackberry and my laptop working out of my home till we found an office. And now, you know, it's running beautifully. The program's still running. Um, but... So a lot of it was just building it up from scratch. Mm -hmm. And I love doing that. I love the challenge of that. Um, Mm -hmm. So a lot of it started out just like matching people, doing kind of science consulting. But it kind of branched out into special events. We would, you know, like if a new movie came out, we would actually do a panel discussion around it. They're doing this more and more. We, did, mm-hmm. we worked yeah. a lot with Marvel and Disney. Mm-hmm. Um, and my favorite thing was uh, George Romero agreed to do a screening of his new zombie movie, and we brought in a couple of scientists to talk about zombie science. And so Romero was there, and uh, Max Brooks, who wrote World War Z, was there, <laughs> and he was the moderator, and it ended up just being a blast.
3: Wait, so what is zombie science? Um, well, one of the guys. Okay, one of the guys like was zombies. a biology.
5: One of the guys was a neuroscientist, and he was talking about the zombie brain. Why are they hungry all the time? You
3: know. <laughs> you know these are not real Am I a zombie thing? Thing. if husband- You know. Okay. I'm interested that you bring this <laughs> up. Tangent. Okay. We're like, gonna, how we're gonna, do you study the brain of not real
5: things? <laughs> okay. This came up when I was writing the physics of the Buffyverse. You're being very science
3: right now. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And I'm uh, worst the things, right? I would yeah. tell <laughs> a physicist
5: that I was writing a book about the okay. physics of the Buffyverse and I'll look at me and they would my, go, okay. you know vampires aren't real, right? <laughs> <laughs> but... I would argue that okay, okay, the neuroscience of the you are you brain. are creating a fictional world, okay, mm-hmm. in the Buffyverse, and you can't just do anything you want. There are rules in right. any in any right. science fiction sure. fantasy world, and those rules provide constraints. Mm-hmm. That's your physics. Mm. That's the rules that you can't break, and it might not be our physics, but it's still physics. And the same goes mm-hmm. for the neuroscience of zombies. That said, the other guy was a mathematician who did epidemiology.
3: Okay, so the epidemiology ratio works You accept that that. I accept that. Sure. (laughs) I mean it's just disease spread.
4: (laughs) Well, I think you know, we're in this time where digital media continues to grow and it seems that, you know, more and more content creators are trying to bridge the gap between science and just creating really compelling stories around it. Mm -hmm. What do you think is is there a key to doing that well?
5: Well, I mean, (laughs) telling a good story. I think think you're seeing this more and more. Uh, It's becoming much more of a theme in science communication as well. Mm -hmm. There's this wonderful program called the Story Collider that my friend Ben Lilly started several years ago, and it's basically stand-up storytelling. They started working in New York City, and now they've got satellites all over. Um, Scientists are taught and trained to get up there and tell one of their amazing stories. Um, It's like the moth, only better. (laughs) Very cool. (laughs) With science. Um, So... More and more we're looking at that because mm-hmm. you know you, you can cite a lot of studies that show that people respond more to that than they will to just hitting them with a bunch of facts. Mm-hmm. And I think that's been a mistake for a long time in science communication. They have what's known as the deficit model. If I just explain to you the facts, you will you know learn those and you will change your mind. And no, people <laughs> don't. They resent it and they double down. They really? Think, I hadn't noticed
4: that. You <laughs> had.
5: You totally had.
4: The backfire effect is famous now. Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Oh <laughs> my well, goodness. Okay. I think we, uh, we're done. To ask you about yeah, jujitsu, we, we have <laughs> to.
3: Okay, so you've been known to call upon the fundamentals, uh, uh, jujitsu, to demonstrate the fundamentals of right. Newtonian mechanics. Um, can you explain what that means? And also, <laughs> where did martial arts come into your human Venn diagram? How oh, did that?
5: It's, it's another serendipitous thing, and of course, once these serendipitous <laughs> things happen, I find a way to bring them into my main Venn diagram set, right? <laughs> Love it. So I was taking a self-defense class at my gym. A friend of mine was, like, too intimidated, so I said I'd do it with him, and I loved it, and he quit. Wait, let's clarify. He was intimidated, and you were his, his wing woman. I was his wing woman That's amazing. to take the self-defense okay, class, and um, I just loved it. First of all, the first thing you do when you learn jiu-jitsu is you spend the first two weeks learning how to fall. Mm. Mm. And that's a wonderful metaphor because the the, the thing that I the lesson I looked, took out of that was it's okay to fail. That failure is actually a process of learning. And it really taught me to get over my anxiety because when you're a really overachieving, disciplined person, the one thing you hate is letting people down or letting yourself down. Yep. And in martial arts, if you don't fail over and over and over again a thousand times, you will never get good. Mm. So and of course, there's a lot of physics and martial arts, and I loved it. And there's a lot of, you know, anatomy and biology. Um, I uh, my favorite part was one of my instructors was doing his dental studies. Uh, he was becoming a dentist and they were in their anatomy, their, their dissection portion. And when you're a dentist, <laughs> you actually have to go all the way down the arm because all those nerves are connected to really? your teeth. I, I didn't know. realize that. I didn't either. Wow. So I was having trouble with one of the arm bars. And he said, all right. And what with, is an arm, an arm bar? bar? An arm bar is where I would basically, I can't show it because I'm holding a mic, I would basically <laughs> try and break your arm but like a door and a hinge. Oh, okay. You, you want to like, you know, the arm does this, but it doesn't go that way, right? Correct. So you want to get, you want to like lock it in here and then a lever principle pull down there and bust the arm that way. Oh, that, I have to take jujitsu. That's I'm a simple really arm. i really queasy right now. <laughs> that's a simple be arm bar. There's another way to rip out the rotator cuff, and that's the one that I was having trouble with. <laughs> <laughs> so can, can, you, you, you were trying to closer? figure out
4: how to do it, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So he
5: snuck me into the anatomy lab, and we ended up practicing arm bars on the corpses for an hour. <gasps> it was like the best thing I've ever done in my life. That You're horrified, is, but I did it. That has gotta be the best wait, story. Wait, pause. Did you
3: did you break the arms of oh, the Oh no, dead no, arms? no, you
5: would just practice it because you could see how the bones and the nerves moved, and it helped me visualize it so wow. that when I took the test and had to do the arm bar, I was struggling, and Kent, my instructor, leaned over and says, Now just picture the ulna. Remember we did that and you could see how it was like gonna break when we, you know, I went, Oh yeah, and I got it like that. Oh. I-, I see
4: how you are not afraid of very much oh, yes. <laughs> <Just> doing that. <laughs>
3: Very good training for... Uh, I think we have confirmed confirmed that my queasiness would not make (laughs) me good for
5: this. If I was not a writer, I would be an ME, a medical examiner. (sighs) I think I would love that. I love it. Well, we uh, are going to move on to a
4: a tiny little segment, which really is just going to be scratching the surface, uh, called Science and Math Hacks. Mm -hmm. So, Jennifer, we thought it would be really fun because (laughs) you have in your books, you have Ways of using science and math um, that are so unexpected that those of us who when we were in math class and we're like When is this going to be part of my life?
5: Uh, I that said is, that myself. <laughs> yeah,
4: <laughs> totally. Um, you know that that just sort of goes out the window mm-hmm. So we thought and of course because we're breezing through these uh, If you guys want to hear more of the calculus diaries the physics of the Buffyverse You have awesome deep dives
5: into these. Mm-hmm. She um, wouldn't the first... let me bring my whiteboard to walk you through the equations. <laughs>
4: <laughs> and you said that, I'm like, oh, did you bring your whiteboard? <laughs> <laughs> Geek over here. Okay, so the first one we thought we'd ask you about is that it is housing, is buying a house. So mm-hmm. it is no secret, look at that lovely little cottage. Thank you to Liz at KPCC for pulling these images. Mm-hmm. I I want to live there. So 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 anyway, so we know that the housing market in LA and elsewhere is a toughie right now. Yes. Do you have some mathematical words of wisdom for prospective home buyers? Yes. This is why it's it's useful
5: to be married to a physicist because we were, we were house hunting <laughs> about the same time I was writing the calculus book, and he said, Oh, well, you know this is basically a multivariable optimization problem. I went, cool. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <You> know. Explain. <laughs> and it turns out that every time we comparison shop, that's pretty much what we do. Um, because what we were doing, we were looking at a lot, lot of different houses, mm-hmm. and we made a list you know, of the things that we liked about each one, the things that were important to us and which ones met where. You're never going to find the perfect place. We know this from watching House Hunters all the time on (laughs) HGTV. Mm -hmm. Um, Plus, there are only three choices. Anyway, So, I mean, you do that House House Hunters show. So I did it the old-fashioned way with the list, and my husband came up with an equation. And, and he basically assigned a variable to each one of those sure, things. And of course, you need a constraint, which mm-hmm. is the price. Because mm-hmm. you can just set everything to infinity to get your perfect house. But sure. you know, we're, you know, we're not rich. So. <laughs> and it ends up actually working. We did our each our own way. And his equation came up with the same answer that my old-fashioned method did. <gasps> like so we this. are all doing calculus. Every time you comparison <laughs> shop, you, whether you know it or not, you're doing calculus.
3: I, I love now, it. Now, has, has it. he published this equation? It's not, it doesn't need to publish. It's, it's a standard calculus equation. Yeah. It's in any, any textbook. No, but you have to apply your personal weights depending on the variables Yes, I think that he made up you. his
5: own variables. You can have fun with the variables, okay. right? Absolutely. I feel
3: like they, there's a good blog Christina post. Christina Karius into okay. our next hack. So <laughs> in the calculus diaries... She's a math geek. I love this. I mean, I built an Excel model when I was apartment uh, shopping recently. Um, okay, so in the calculus diaries, you wrote, uh, everyone should visit Disneyland with a physicist in tow, just for is. the novelty. Yes. I mean, that sounds like fun. Period, but um, in an entirely—it's an entirely new way of looking at the Magic Kingdom. Mm-hmm. So, can you share your favorite piece of Disneyland physics so we can feel super knowledgeable next time we go? Sure. Um,
5: <laughs> my my favorite physics problem was actually Space Mountain because you mm-hmm. know Space Mountain is this—is you're you're in the dark, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. and you're on it on a on a, uh, on a roller coaster, topsy turvy. So and but you can feel acceleration, you can feel the g-forces, right? Mm -hmm. And believe it or not, there's an app for this called an accelerometer that you can get on your iPhone. Mm -hmm. And physics uh, classes do this all the time, every June. They they take their people to Six Flags and they have (laughs) their homemade accelerometers and they ride the roller coaster. And that gives them essentially the acceleration function because it plots their acceleration at every point along this curve. If you've done any calculus, curves are the faces of functions, Mm -hmm. mathematical functions, and that gives you a formula. And what you can then do is, okay, now you know the acceleration and you want to find out the position. And you've got to kind of be tricky. You've got to, like, first of all, you've got to do, take an integral you've got to mm-hmm. add up a whole bunch of all, all those little acceleration things and that gives you your velocity and then you add up all the velocities and that gives you your position. So it's a way of, I have this piece of information and I want this piece of information and I can use calculus to figure that out. So next time you go to
4: Disneyland,
5: get the accelerometer
4: app... And yes. your mind will be blown. That is that is so well, Now so I just cool. kind of
3: want to, to plot that at Disneyland for Space Mountain and then go to like Six Flags and do all of them and be able to kind of comparison yeah. It is shop. a complicated <laughs> problem. My you might need coasters. a computer because you've got vectors changing. Wait a minute. Remember. Christina, Fair. did you
4: just put a math hack in another math hack? Is that what <laughs> <laughs> happened? Is that not how you have fun? Um, I'm having fun. I'm okay. having a great time. Uh <laughs> Awesome. Okay, we have time for one more, Mm -hmm. uh, which is to solve this age-old Buffy the Vampire Slayer question once and for all. (laughs) There she is. Hello, Buffy. Uh, What is the best kind of wood, indeed, to use for a stake, especially uh, if you are trying to slay a Khan or an Ubervamp, as Buffy and her cohorts call them? Right.
5: Uh, mm-hmm. Those of you who don't watch the show, the ubervamp, <laughs> you know, you stab, you stab and they turn to dust with a with wooden stake. The ubervamp actually is an ancient vampire and it's just got a really hard chest that acts a little bit like one of those bulletproof vests that you were know, made of a smart material for impact. The Olympic skiers wear them. Mm-hmm. And the minute you have an impact, they'll tighten up and then they'll mm-hmm. loosen up again. Yeah. So it's like that. It's hard to stake through that. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that the kind of wood you use is really significant. And I ended up teaming up with a material scientist to do this <laughs> and he was great. Uh, because not only did he, pract- he could come make little stakes out of different kinds of wood, but he also Thanksgiving weekend took some time to like s- practice with the cookie dough, stabbing each one, <laughs> and then like writing that down the results. That is how <laughs> I have fun. F Y I. Uh, and it turns out you don't want pine. There's a reason that martial artists use pine boards when they break boards; they Easy break really easily. Uh, um, what you want is maple or ash, and ash in particular. This is why you want to have a material scientist on your side. Mm-hmm. It's piezo electric. Which means that it emits a tiny spark uh, when it when it has and it's it's one of the few woods that's able to do that and it turns really? out that ash is very plentiful in Southern California so Buffy would have had a very nice supply for her steaks and it was oh in it very much the perfect steak to use it's hard that's it sweet. won't splinter and if you've got something hard like a like the metal of a Turokans you know sort of chest area exoskeleton yeah, yeah it'll end up as you can burn through a little bit with the spark
4: oh that is that now is I just so want cool cookies. Yeah. <laughs> that is so cool well. It is, surprisingly, because we never have enough time on our show, time for the The lightning
3: lightning round.
4: So that, that, if you listen to our show, is our visual lightning round sound cue, which mm. is like all of the sound cues in a sound cue. <laughs> it gives me like a little bit of anxiety and a lot of excitement at the same time. So thanks for going on the ride. Okay. So I think we just have time for a very
5: small handful of lightning round questions.
4: Well, Christina, see.
3: kick it off. Okay. Classic lightning round first question. What are you reading right now?
5: Um, I'm rereading All the President's Men for rather obvious reasons.
3: Yes. You know, it holds up. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Not surprised. Awesome.
5: Uh,
4: what was the last thing that made you go, wow?
5: Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I just finished uh, writing this article um, on uh, dark matter. Dark matter is this mysterious stuff in the universe. And... Um, uh, nobody really kind of knows what it is. But they're searching for it and they thought it was like one, one kind of particle, which is these wimps, cold mm-hmm. dark matter or whatever. Um, so I just wrote this article and a guy says, no, no, I think it's a different kind of particle. It's something totally different. It's a kind of particle that can undergo a phase transition. It can change from one state to another. Ooh. And at some at the level of galaxies, it's a superfluid. It has no viscosity and and it has like these unique properties and at the bigger galaxy cluster scale, it's not and it can change. And I'd never heard that. I mean, I thought that the the dark matter model was the dark matter model, it turns out it's not. It it, it could be a lot more complicated. And to me, that's way more interesting and I hope that it's right. Although nature kind of does what it wants, not what we want.
3: (laughs) That's amazing, okay. Wow. I know. Yeah, Uh, (laughs)
5: that's awesome.
3: What is something you've recently added to
5: your Venn diagram? This is interesting. I have a friend who's an artist. Her name's Leah Halloran. She's here in Los Angeles. And uh, her dad is a physicist. So a lot of her art pieces tend to have scientific themes. And she has been working on this gorgeous, like, series... Um, centered around uh, the the women who uh, in the 1912, 20s uh, were called Pickering's Harem. They were at Harvard. They were the Harvard calculators. And they were the women that they hired to just go through all the astrophotographic plates and identify galaxies and clusters and count all those sorts of things. Mm -hmm. And they ended up, you know, it was one of the few times that women were ever hired to do anything remotely scientific. They weren't Mm -hmm. even allowed to get their PhDs or hold you know, tenured Mm -hmm. positions or anything like that, but they were allowed to do this. And they actually (laughs) made a couple of very significant discoveries. Henrietta Leavitt was one of them. Right. Um, So what uh, she's done is she's taken the plates that they used and she's created these wonderful cyanotype paintings of them. And what I'm working with her on is they're putting that together into a collective book and we're all writing essays. And we're also going to be posing for paintings in these, these sort of sun paintings where you like sit out in the sun and it kind of creates a painting around your body. Oh, that's and it's so going to cool. be it's going to recreate a famous photo of the women like the paper doll photo where they're all standing out holding hands. And so the women who are contributing to the catalog are going to be recreating that only with these cyanotypes.
4: Okay, that's really cool.
5: That's really, really cool. I'm really excited about that. Yeah. <laughs> it's totally <laughs> new. I've never done anything like it before. <laughs>
4: <laughs> Absolutely. Well, last question is, give a shout-out for a woman who's doing awesome things in STEM or science communication, uh, in addition to Leah and everyone working on this yeah. project, someone that you just want to give a little extra
5: love to. I'm actually going to do get a three-in-one. Um, uh, there's a group the rules, here like called it. The Sirens, and they're a group of actresses. Um, They obviously, you know, are human Venn diagrams, so they're not just (laughs) actresses, Um, but they basically are trying to merge uh, their acting and their music and all the things that they do with science. They are trying to produce, write their own shows, and they're going on pitches, and um, one of them is a good friend of mine, Gia Mora, and she has a show called Einstein's Girl. It's a cabaret where she, like, does songs uh, based around Einstein and physics and science. Awesome. Taryn O'Neill is an actress, she's been on Granite Flats, and uh, she like writes sh- uh, science fiction short stories, and they're working on things together, and Tamara Krinsky does theater, and also you see her a lot of times on the red carpet at Marvel openings, because that's, she's the person who does those interviews, and together they are the sirens, and I think that they're doing great work. That's awesome. Awesome. Well, Woo! yes,
4: give it up for the sirens. We will look out for them. And of course, if you guys wanna know more about Jennifer's work, look her up. All of your books, they are such great reads. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, We're such big fans. We are, thank Uh, you for joining us. Yes, and that that is our part of the show. Thank you so much, you guys, for coming. And uh, thank you.